Star Wars, give me those Star Wars, nothing but Star Wars, don't have that Hello and welcome back to Give Me Those Star Wars, the official Star Wars show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and I'm happy to welcome back to the show the host of the Film and Water Podcast, the Fire and Water Podcast, Who's Who, and Pod Dylan. Plus, you should have heard him on the very first episode of this podcast. It's Mr. Rob Kelly. How are you doing, Rob? Thank, I'm glad to be back, Ryan. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you for coming back. I don't think I needed to twist your arm or anything since we're going to be talking about a topic that is very near and dear to your heart, right? Yeah, I love Star Wars. I love the show. I love what we're going to talk about. I'm okay with you. So that's a pretty good uh, percentage to come back on the show. Stanley, two and a half out of three or something like that. <laughs> 75%. 75%. Good enough. I've worked with less. Um, for any of you listening, if you didn't read the show notes or really the subject of this episode, Rob and I are going to be talking about Marvel Special Editions featuring Star Wars, otherwise known as the Star Wars Treasury Comics. Or the good versions of the Star Wars Special Editions. (laughs) But before we do get to the treasuries, uh, we've got some other Star Wars business to tackle. Since Rob has been on the show before, I don't need to ask him how he discovered Star Wars. And that means we can jump right into the current events segment. This is the part of the show where we talk about something new in the realm of Star Wars movies, comics, books, etc., Big spoiler warning, we're going to be talking about some revelations that came out of last weekend at Star Wars Celebration 2016. If you don't want to hear spoilers about the movie Rogue One or the Rebels Season 3, skip over this segment. The start times for each section are listed in the show notes. You can just skip right ahead and advance the player until you get to the right safe spot. Okay, if you're still with us, prepare to be spoiled. Last weekend was Star Wars Celebration Europe 2016, which is a bizarre name because the event was held in London, and as I understand it, England is no longer part of Europe anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We got a few things out of this. Uh, First and foremost, we got a Rogue One Celebration sizzle reel. Rob, did you see this? I did, all nine times that they ran it. Yeah. It's basically a collection, and The Force Awakens did the same thing at San Diego Comic-Con. It is not a new trailer, but it does have some footage, but it's very much just a collection of behind-the-scenes footage, some making of tidbits, interviews with the director, Gareth Edwards, some nice little sound bites. You know, it didn't show it in the context of the film like a trailer or a teaser would, but it did show a lot, and I thought it looked great. Yeah, I'm super. I, I, you know, I am jazzed for this movie. I really am. I'm like this, and I love the Gareth Edwards' phrase that this movie touches one of his favorite movies of all time. <laughs> That's such an interesting way of putting it. Of like, wow, I'm I'm making a movie that is literally interlocking with my, one of my favorite movies. That's a very I never thought of it that way, but that's absolutely true. And what an honor that's got to be, you know, to be, be like, hey, you're going to make a movie that's going to lead into. Ghostbusters. You're going to make a move that's going to lead into, you know, Back to the Future. Like, wow, that's cool. It's sort of like making like a movie about the expedition that Hooper was going to go on, canceled to do Jaws instead. 
<laughs> like the sort of parallels. No, I thought it looked great. We saw lots of different types of stormtroopers, new Imperial soldiers. We saw lots of little camos. There's one shot, I think, they're like the still photos of it. I'm seeing everywhere of stormtroopers walking through water, like wading through. I think that looks great. I put that on my Facebook wall. There's a filming thing of, I think he's actually like a regular part of their rebel crew. He's an alien, a little bit smaller in stature. And he's got, he, he looks like the door gunner of a helicopter. It's the way they were like kind of like showing it being filmed. It felt very much like a scene from a Vietnam movie, like Apocalypse Now. And he's got it like the door. Sure gunner. did. Yeah. yeah. He's got the door shut and he just like kind of like screams, like, like, like shouts like he just, he killed somebody and he's like kind of like, like laughing or chuckling in victory. There was a, a wildness to that scene. I was like, okay, that guy's my favorite character. And I don't even know what this movie is about <laughs> or, or what he, who he is, but. Um, there was a new teaser of footage shown to the people who went to the celebration panel that has not been made public yet. As I understand it, some of the effect shots in that teaser were not finalized. So I don't know if we will end up getting that maybe a modified version at some point now. I mean, we're what we're less than six months away from the movie. So probably at some point in the next month or two, we'll get an official trailer. Or the, I mean, I would think so. Yeah. I mean, they might wait till like October, like they did with the Force Awakens. Hopefully not. But there was a bit of controversy that came out around the panel for Rogue One. Did you hear about this? Mm, I don't think so. Okay, I'm not. I, I'm not going to mention the the name or anything because I don't want to spoil it. And even though this is a spoiler section, during the panel they had the cast up there, and one of the actors, one of the Chinese actors, Jing Wen, mentioned specifically, like pointed out another character who dies. Now, oh jeez, really? Yeah, I, missed, and, I must have missed that. Yeah, wow. and the, the panel panel was moderated by Gwendolyn Christie, who plays Captain Phasma, and like she couldn't cut to a different topic soon enough. It, like everybody was sort of like, <gasps> and like even like the people in the audience, they were like, "Do you not get how this works?" Of course, we want to know spoilers, but you can't give us spoilers. That's the way this relationship works, and we understand that. Wow. So, so here, and I'm not going to say who it is, but people listening to this, if you want to know and you haven't heard already, you can Google Rogue One character death. But, yeah, it, it was a weird thing where this guy, Jang Wen, who plays a character named Baze, I think, he's the Chinese actor with the long hair. He's got kind of a reddish armor. He points to one of the other cast members and says, when he dies, my character reacts this way, dot, 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 dot. And everybody's oh, just kind of like, oh, and, and I mean, I this is a movie about the rebel group stealing the planes. These are all characters that we never see in any of the subsequent Star Wars movies, at least not that we know of, so... I was kind of going into this movie expecting most, if not all of them, to die. But right. I mean, they're they're you, calling when, it like the Dirty Dozen, and exactly. the Dirty Dozen. It, it ended, that movie ended with like a Dirty Three or something. <laughs> exactly. Like yeah. Or or even like a in Saving Private Ryan, like Tom Hanks's crew started off with eight guys, and I think only two of them walked away. Yep. Yep. It, so yeah, I, I got to that, and I was like, uh, all right, I I knew that was going to happen, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to see that. Uh, I don't want to hear it confirmed by right. some guy on a stage. Right. Yeah. A few other confirmations we did. It's they, they showed it in one of the teaser. Darth Vader will be in the movie. Still don't know the extent of his role, but that's that's official. Um, one other thing not related to Rogue One, but I just saw this earlier today on one of the other panels. You don't watch Star Wars Rebels, do you? I do not. Okay. I watched season one and really, really enjoyed it. Um, I've only seen like the first two episodes of season two and I had to stop. It wasn't because of a quality thing. It was just managing my time. Uh, But I was more or less enjoying the show. It wasn't 
it wasn't the greatest thing since sliced bread, but I liked it well enough. But they showed a trailer for season three, and one of the new characters, one of the new bad guys they're introducing is Grand Admiral Thrawn. They are Ooh. making him officially canon in the new continuity. Cool. Yeah. I'm not sure how I feel about that because we really never got Grand Admiral Thrawn not written by Timothy Zahn, so I don't know how it'll be when other people are handling him. Yeah, I'll just, I'll be interested. The one thing that I did note was that he is voiced by the actor Lars Mikkelsen, the brother of Mads Mikkelsen, <laughs> who is going to be uh, in Rogue One, who's also in Doctor Strange. Uh, Lars Mikkelsen is in the Netflix show House of Cards. He plays like the Russian premier or the president of Russia. Uh, he was also in, I think, the third season of Sherlock, the one with Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. So, I think the uh, I think the third Mickelson brother, Shemp Mickelson, is in the Han Solo movie. <laughs> I'm not, I'm sure. He better be. <laughs> <sighs> no, I want to find out if there's actually a Shemp Mickelson. <laughs> All right, well, uh, unless you have anything else on the uh, celebration panel, uh, we are going to take a short promotional break. But we will be back in a minute to talk about Treasury Comics. The Film and Water Podcast, a weekly show about movies old and new. Hosted by obsessive movie nerd Rob Kelly and a rotating series of special guests. From sci-fi to horror, dramas to family films, comedies to adventure epics, we watch it all. The Film and Water Podcast is part of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. Available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.blogspot.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that taste forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler, and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2 in 1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? Okay, we are back to talk about the Star Wars Special Editions. Oh no, not those Special Editions. This is the topic we've been circling for a while now. I think right after we recorded the first episode, Rob messaged me saying, Hey, I'd love to talk about the Star Wars Treasury comics if you ever want to do an episode like that. And my first thought was, yeah, that sounds awesome. I send that message to people who don't even have podcasts. (laughs) I just send that message. I think I eventually hit some target. (laughs) Great. Uh, but like I said, my first thought was, that sounds awesome. And then my second thought was, I don't own the Treasury comics. <gasps> so 
I did kind of forget about it for a little while until two months later I was in a comic shop and just sort of wondered if they had any treasury books and as luck would have it they did have both volumes one and two for pretty cheap Uh, so I scored them both and then it was just a matter of figuring out when we could do this episode before we get into these particular books Rob can you let our listeners know Basically, what is a Treasury Edition comic book? How are they different? How and why did Marvel and DC publish these versions? Give us some context for the Treasuries. All right. I mean, if you want to be like a stickler, I would say a Treasury comic is anything that's oversized, which, you know, is anything that's like, you know, bigger than your standard comic book. And there have been oversized comics starting in the 30s. In fact, the first DC comic ever published is a treasury size. Uh, New Fun Comics is, is a J because it was originally the, the size of a newspaper. But when you say treasury comics, really what most people are referring to are the books published by DC and Marvel in the 70s uh, that are 10 by 13 and are these either by Marvel's, in Marvel's they are square bound, DCs were stapled, and they were mostly, in the beginning, reprint collections. Uh, They were kind of early versions of trade paperbacks, because a lot of times they were thematically related, or they were, like, in terms of a story that went from chapter to chapter to chapter, or they were, like, you know, the secret origins of the supervillains. They had all the secret origins together, or, you know, Batman detective stories, Batman stories. And as they wore on in the late 70s, they started featuring new material, uh, Marvel did some new material. DC kind of made more of a splash with Superman versus Muhammad Ali, Superman versus Shazam, uh, stuff like that. And then, of course, uh, Superman versus Spider-Man, Batman versus Hulk. Uh, and then they both faded out in the early 80s. Basically, uh, they were created because distribution numbers were going down. Comics were starting to wane, and DC and Marvel were like, well, we got to do something to attract new readers or get some excitement. So they tried all these different formats, and that's when you had, you know, magazines and digests and treasury. They were trying everything they could to retain that audience. And they lasted a good 10 years, and then they basically faded out in the early 80s. DC brought them back very briefly with Paul Dini and Alex Ross's uh, line of books. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Marvel actually hadn't, didn't, hadn't done a treasury for 35 years until last month when they released Spidey number one as a treasury edition. And so I am hoping that that is the beginning of a new line of treasury editions for Marvel. We'll see. Why do you particularly like these so much? I had them as a kid. I mean, you know, I will admit it's total nostalgia is that they were, I mean, first of all, they tried to provide what movies tried to provide in the 50s to stave off television, mm-hmm. which was a bigger picture. You know, I mean, the minute that TV really became, uh, you know, prevalent in the uh, American society, movies went to widescreen. Movies started showing you these things that only you could see in the movie theaters. And that's really what treasuries are. It's Imagine being a little kid and reading a Superman comic that is like two thirds your height. <laughs> you know, it's really impressive. And I I love them. I loved every one of them. I bought as many as I could. Uh, I've told the story in another podcast, but like I remember when I was a kid and my dad occasionally had to work on a Saturday at his office. He and I, if, if I had to go with him. He would go and we would we would go to this one store. He would buy me like four or five of these Treasury comics, plop me down at his secretary's desk. And quite literally, for the next four to five hours, he could just sit there and get work done while I just read. <laughs> and I didn't I didn't make a single peep because I was so in love with these things. They were a portal into comic book history. Uh, and, you know, the, the a lot of times they, they had like a new cover. I mean, it was just amazing to me. I mean, they're just the 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 presentation is just so special and interesting. And Marvel would do have all these little fun little features. They were like puzzles and games and pinups. DC would do stuff like that, too. I mean, they really made them 
kind of special. And that's, you know, they've always retained the sort of uh, magic uh, for me. In fact, I have a picture in our photo, uh, on our, one of our family photo albums of a treasury that I bought while I was on vacation uh, with my family. And like, I love the treasury so much. Astonishing Spider-Man, Marvel Treasury number 18. <laughs> I loved it so much. I put it in a chair, took a picture of it. Just the comic, <laughs> you know? So yeah, it's, uh, and, and Marvel really put their big characters uh, in it. And of course, and then, then they did Star Wars. I remember I would occasionally see these, like, just the oversized, the treasury editions of comics, and for some reason, I always equated them with Rolling Stone magazine, because my dad (laughs) collected Rolling Stone magazine, and it was about the same size. You know, Rolling Stone has recently decreased their size and gotten more of a regular magazine, but they always, they just seemed larger. Yep. Um, You previously mentioned the uh, Superman versus Muhammad Ali. The price on that one has gone up a lot recently. Hmm. I can't imagine why. <laughs> hmm. They're relatively easy to get in halfway decent shape, luckily. Mm-hmm. They, the, the prices have not skyrocketed for most of the, the reprint ones. Yeah, and like I said, like the two versions that I got of these, I got the two volumes for Star Wars and I think I paid like eight dollars total for both. Oh, of them. that's a deal. That's yeah, a and, super deal. And well, so the thing is, the number two is not the Marvel printing; it is the Whitman reprint. Oh, that's interesting. So, but yeah, uh, like we're saying, Marvel published two Treasury volumes titled Marvel Special Edition, featuring Star Wars. The first book collected issues one, two, and three of the Marvel Star Wars comic book, and the second special edition collected issues four, five, and six. Now, the first six issues of Marvel Star Wars were the comic book adaptation of the film. So, if you have those two treasury books, you have the comic adaptation of the original Star Wars film, the one now called A New Hope. Since we've all seen that movie, I am not going to synopsize the stories in each chapter. Instead, (laughs) I'm just going to give some of the publication data and generally where each issue in the story starts and stops. Issue 1 of Marvel's Star Wars was published on April 12, 1977, roughly six weeks before the movie arrived in theaters in the United States. Roy Thomas wrote and edited the six-issue adaptation based on George Lucas's script. Howard Chaikin illustrated the first chapter and would pencil the next five issues as well. Starting with issue two, Steve Leoloa came aboard to ink and color several issues, probably because his last name included the word Leia. Uh, the first issue was simply titled Star Wars. It opened the same way the movie opens, with the Imperial Star Destroyer capturing Princess Leia's ship. The first issue ends with the dramatic scene of Luke Skywalker getting attacked by the Sand People while trying to recover R2-D2. Issue 2 was called Six Against the Galaxy, and it was published on May 10th, 1977, still two weeks before the movie came out. This issue picks up with old Ben Kenobi rescuing Luke, and it ends with a Millennium Falcon blasting away from Mos Eisley and making the jump to light speed. Star Wars issue 3, Death Star, was the first issue to come out after the release of the film, which hit theaters on May 25th. The comic hit newsstands on June 7th, and ended with our heroes and the newly rescued Princess Leia trapped in the detention block as Imperial reinforcements cut off their exits. Issue 4 is called In Battle with Darth Vader because it features the dramatic duel between Lord Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi, and the issue ends with the Falcon escaping from the Death Star. It was published on July 12, 1977. Issue 5 came out on August 10th. It was titled Lo, the Moons of Yavin, and it ended with... <laughs> My favorite title. <laughs> and it ended with the rebel fighters flying off to attack the Death Star. 
For issue 6, Rick Hoberg took over the inking duties. The story titled, Is This the Final Chapter?, came out on September 13th, and it was, in fact, the last chapter to adapt the movie, ending with Luke and Han receiving their medals in front of the gathered Rebel Alliance. That is how the original six issues were broken up. As I said earlier, issues one through three were collected in the first Star Wars Treasury comic, which was published on August 1st, 1977, so between issues four and five. And the second Treasury, which collected issues four through six, came out on October 25th. Does that seem right that Star Wars would have published this like as soon as they could? Like This one came out before the first Treasury came out, before the series was done being published. Yeah, this was a Star Wars was a massive hit for Marvel. And so they were desperate to get it out in as many formats as they could. I mean, they put it out as a trade paper, uh, not a trade paperback, a paperback, mm-hmm. literally a paperback where everything is down, you know, to go from a treasury to a paperback is kind of amazing. Uh, I'm the one format they never did it in was magazine, which is sort of I mean, maybe not totally surprising because Marvel really hadn't geared up their magazine format to that point. They had only been doing Savage Sword of Conan, but I'm sure if they had had Marvel Super Special going, or maybe they did, they never did it in a magazine. And I do need to correct you briefly: there is a third Star Wars Treasury. It collects all six in one book. That's right. Okay, I did. I had heard about that, but I thought maybe it was just a reprinting of those. Okay, so yeah, is it called like? issue three or volume three or something it didn't know it's called marvel it's called like marvel special edition number one again it's marvel okay. was very fast and loose with its <laughs> treasury titles they didn't well, care marvel loves to put issue one on everything they so. sure do yep so how did you discover these specific star wars treasuries was it just one of those things like your dad picked you up and yeah i mean i i bought the i remember buying star wars number seven uh at a mall and it was just like the most exciting thing because it was new star wars mm-hmm. you know it's like dude this is this is not the movie this is something else and you know i mean this that was in the freaking 70s when you know you were going to wait another 3 years for a movie if if they ever made that one and you were certainly never going to see star wars again uh you know what what are the odds of that so uh yeah and so i was just it, i just wanted to relive it as much as i could so even though i had all the original star wars comics i bought the treasuries anyway cuz i just was like i want to look at it big and this had some special features. It had some photos, some, some you know, backstage. There's a great photo on the inside back cover of George Lucas sitting in his director's chair with Alec Guinness, mm-hmm. which I love. I just love that picture of the two of them. And so, yeah, I, I you know, I didn't I didn't care that it really wasn't giving me anything new except for some covers. I, I just was like, giant Star Wars comic, sold. In terms of, I mean, you mentioned one of the appeals of the treasuries is just seeing the book on a bigger, grander scale. I think that really lends itself to a story like this. And I think the the giant scope, particularly for Howard Chaykin's art. And I I, I admitted it to you before on a different podcast that I had never read the Star Wars Marvel run. Um, I have since gone back and started reading. I'm about 15 issues in. It's still taking me longer just because of other duties. But uh, I, I was really reluctant to dive into it. And part of it was the feeling of, will it be as special as everyone's told me? Part of it was, honestly, Howard Chaykin, because I, my first experience with him was Black Kiss. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that sort of defines your relationship with an artist. It's like, oh, wow. These Star Wars comics are bags. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, this, is this going to make Star Wars dirty for me? Is this gonna, like, well, what, what are Han and Leia going to be doing in this comic? There is a lot of kissing. Leia and Luke do a lot of kissing they in these do. Marvel comics. They do. And the way it's drawn, it's very passionate. Yeah, like, like, the, the, the it, kiss that she gives him in the movie 
in Star Wars is very pro forma, you know, for luck. Right. But in the in the movies, their eyes are shut. It's very like lips. Oh, it's yeah. They yeah. there's some yep. time. Yeah, I I made that same note. I was like, that's not a kiss for luck. No, that's for something nope. else. But yeah, I I love it. Like the scenes just seem bigger and grander. Like the Millennium Falcon's flight seems more impressive when it's on the big scale. Like the, the scene. I'm sorry. I mean, the, the yeah. scene where uh, the Death Star, the scene where the Millennium Falcon finds the Death Star or is sucked into the Death Star. Now, in the movie, the only scene you really get for scale mm-hmm. is, of course, that one shot of the Millennium Falcon going in, and you see how tiny it is compared to the slot that it's sliding into. Mm-hmm. But in the comic, it's a full page, and the camera is down below. Yeah. And you see, like, the entire page is filled with just the Death Star. And then you see the Millennium Falcon in perspective, and it's truly an impressive. You're like, wow, that's how big the Death Star is. And looking at it in a treasury page is just that much cooler, I think. I think it really makes it like a kapow kind of moment. Right. And like, well, the end of chapter two, what would be the second issue when it's leaving Tatooine? There's like these weird bars of light creating like a sort of rainbow. Yeah. Roy G. Biv scale is like. Is that what Howard Chicken thought light speed was? Or yeah. was like, there wasn't any other way to show that? There's lots of stuff that's weirdly either lost in translation or just garbled. Because, like, when, when Ben Kenobi sacrifices himself, yeah. in that scene, it looks like Vader just kills him. It doesn't look like he sacrifices him because he's getting whacked and he's, like, all full of lightning. And it really does not look – it completely misjudges that scene. Because it doesn't, and it has. There's no suggestion that Ben is sacrificing himself. It just looks like he lost. It's he's like disincorporate. Like it looks like his body just liquefies. Yeah, and like loses yeah. all, all like corporeal form. It's a weird image, but I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. of course, it features Jabba the Hutt. This this comic features because of course, I mean, as anybody knows, the adaptations are are based on. You know the screenplay, the early version of the movie. So the the, the comic book has all sorts. It has the early scenes with Luke and Biggs and yeah. Cammy and uh, what was the other character? I forget the other characters. Uh, the other the other American <laughs> Graffiti character. Uh, so it has that whole scene. They it call him the Wormy. They call Luke Wormy. Wormy. Yeah, they call Luke Wormy. It has the whole scene with Jabba the Hutt where he's got those mutton chops. <laughs> uh, it's got the scene at the end where Biggs meets up with Luke. Uh, just before the Death Star attack, there's the great scene of when Porkins dies, and then they they cut to not Luke, they cut to Biggs, and he's thinking to himself very solemnly, "Porkins, you will be avenged." <laughs> <laughs> really? Like, okay. <laughs> Stanley stepped in here to write this part. Yeah, really. It's funny because like I knew about all of those things before I ever saw the Star Wars Special Edition movie. Like I knew about the scenes with Jabba because I had seen the the original making of and like the other. A lot of that I saw I knew from the radio drama. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had some experience with these other scenes that they had cut out, and I always I really like the scene with Luke and Biggs and the beginning. But I'm also glad it's cut from the movie for a sense of pacing because I like the the pacing of that movie seems so perfect like in, in the way they slowly introduce characters that I think if we just sort of cut to this kid watching the battle like it would it feels to me like it throws things off a little yep. bit but I yep. do really like that scene and there's also there's dialogue in that scene that I feel like subsequent stories within the Star Wars universe maybe misinterpreted some things or just took it in a different direction because the the whole talk about Luke joining the Academy and Biggs went off and joined the Academy and all these things like 
I think a lot of people just kind of assumed that he meant the Imperial Academy, like right, you're right. joining the Empire and that's how who trains you to be a pilot. But I always from this like got the impression and there was just basically a general pilot's academy. Like if you wanted to be a space trucker or a space, you know, pilot doing commercial work, you didn't have to go through a military training to be an Imperial officer. You just went to flight school and that was called the Academy. And you might then be drafted by the Empire if you like scored high enough. But like, I never felt like just joining that. So I never thought that Biggs was necessarily an Imperial officer when he defected to the Rebellion. But that was how the story was later told. Yeah, I like that scene with Biggs too. But yeah, as you say, the in Luke's intro in Star Wars is perfect. Mm-hmm. And so any scene with him before that would ruin that moment and you don't want to ruin that moment so you know but i wish those scenes were just more readily available i mean i wish i you know like they're not they're still not available on any star wars discs or anything and did i they, wish they were did like i did they film all of that like i would, yeah yeah that's all like filmed. i knew i knew there were photos yeah. of that set but i didn't know yeah if it's it was filmed. all filmed so yeah 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 that stuff's out there i mean because uh, the, what's her name that uh, the actress ku stark is plays cammy like mm-hmm. she's credited in the movie yeah. you know like as not in not inside the movie itself but she's credited like you know on imdb i think and it's just like so yeah all that stuff's all that stuff's filmed it's just lucas has kept it under wraps all this time i've never been happy with the job of the hut scene in this movie <laughs> no. like never because a it is well there's like four reasons it's redundant because all of the dialogue the exchange has already been shown in the scene with han and greedo and he shoots first in the comic. He does. Let's be very um, clear. It spoils the reveal of the Millennium Falcon. Yep. It makes Jabba seem less threatening. Yep. And he's just sort of like, oh, I, you know, boy, don't don't make me have to come after you. You know, you got to pay me. Or, you know, you're, I love you like a brother, but I've got a reputation. And it's like, this guy isn't scary anymore. But for some reason, I, I do like the scene a little bit better. Like, I also just, I don't, and we talked about this before. I don't like Jabba the Hutt being based on Tatooine. Like, if that's his base of operations, why would Han Solo ever go there? That's funny. I, that never bothered me. But just to me, the the in, again, we're going with the intros. The intro of Jabba in yeah. Jedi, seeing him as the giant right. space slug thing from out of a David Cronenberg movie is perfect. <laughs> and and I don't want to see an ambulatory Jabba. Right. Like to me, the minute he becomes ambulatory, it just ruins it. Yeah, I, I enjoy there. There's a later issue of not to spoil it for you, but there's a later issue of the Marvel Star Wars series where Jabba comes back in, and there's a whole plot. It's a whole issue about Jabba the Hutt mm-hmm. and and hand facing off, and it's that same Jabba with yeah. the yellow skin and the giant mutton chops and stuff. He looks like he's a member of a pure prairie league or something. But it, and it, it it's a fun issue, but you just have to put it out of your mind that that's just, you're like, well, this is not Jabba the Hutt. I'm reading a story, and he's called Jabba the Hutt. But he's not Jabba the Hutt because it's just—it's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there are things like that in this one. Leia says her father's name is Bail Antilles, and yeah. that would be changed. They have other things in this, like Darth Vader is called a Sith Lord in this, mm-hmm. and that still comes back to me. Like I've always—I don't know where that came from. If it was from the novelization or something else, I always knew Darth Vader was called a Lord of the Sith even though that word never appears in the three original movies. Yeah, I know. I don't know where I knew it either, but it just I, it became as familiar to me as, as anything. But yeah, I can't yeah. really pinpoint where I heard it. And to me, I always assumed, like, if that wasn't, like, well, I mean, no, because I, I think if I was younger, if I had seen the originally, I might have thought, like, the Sith was his race before I found out that he was a human because he was Luke's father. 
when I heard it, like, I just assumed, like, that was part of, like, the Empire's secret police. Like, the Sith was just, like, the sort of inner cult of Jedi hunters. The SS, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. And they weren't necessarily all Force-sensitive or any of them. He might have been the only one that was. But, like, I thought, for some reason, my mind was just making connections. I thought Boba Fett was originally a Sith, but he got kicked (laughs) out of their organization because he was too extreme. That's why they have that moment when he says, no disintegrations. Like, I was like, that would have been cool. But then they're like, no, the Sith are just the anti-Jedi. I was like, uh, it's a little disappointing. <laughs> One thing I do want to mention too, and if, if you've anyone who's read the comics, the first issue is just Howard Jake. He inks himself, mm-hmm. and it is very visually different than the rest of them. And I, <laughs> I, I imagine Marvel took a look at the pencils and went, "Wait a minute, we cannot let," because his his very idiosyncratic art style. I really like it. I've always been a fan of his of his when he inks his own stuff, but it is not almost the kind of stuff you would expect for a major league movie tie-in. Mm-mm. So then they bring in Lee Aloha that gives it much more polish, and there's even some shots that are clearly photo referenced yeah. and things yeah. like that. But the first issue of Star Wars is really visually distinctive because it's <laughs> Star Wars filtered through the eyes of Howard Jakin. So, like I said, minus you know like a blowjob or something, it's pretty <laughs> a pretty Howard Jakin story. Uh, there's a the the scene where he chokes Admiral Mahdi is great because it's like a super close up of him as he's like, ah, you know, it's really well done. I love it. I absolutely love it. I love the way Chicken draws the sand people. Like to me, like that looks like Mike Mignola inspired. Like or Mike Mignola was inspired by those drawings. I can like, see that. Yeah. Every, everything he eventually draw in Hellboy was inspired by those. Like. There's a drawing, and I, it's not in the treasuries, and I don't remember where I saw it. I think it was – shoot. I but anyway, there's a drawing, of, a pinup of Princess Leia by Chaken, and it's like – it's about as dirty as you can get away with. She has like these giant orb boobs, and like her tunic is super tight. I'm just picturing 20th Century Fox like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Hold on, hold on, hold on. We can't. We can't have this. But it got printed. I remember I've seen it. I, it might be a pinup of all the characters or something, but it's like you just that's Howard's inner Chaken coming out even during the Star Wars adaptation. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the last like big note that I found that I was kind of fascinated by when I was reading it, when Luke meets, it's not Red Leader in the comic, it's Blue Leader, this guy knows Luke's dad. Like, he has this line where he's like, Outer Skywalker, of course, I met your father once when I was just a boy. He was a great pilot. If you've got half of your father's skill, you'll be you'll do better than all right. And then he's as he's leaving, he's like, the galaxy will be a lot better when all of the sons of the original Jedi Knights are back on the scene. Yeah. Like, like this. Wait a minute. But, but like the the mind just like the possibilities, my mind just like bounced off like a pinball, just going. Like, where was this story? Like the gang of like all of the sons of the Jedi Knights coming together to stop like. And, like like, sometimes I think, as amazing as it is, maybe the reveal that Darth Vader was Luke's dad, maybe that wasn't the best story decision for the franchise. <laughs> I don't know. I feel as though Roy Thomas paced out the adaptation and then he saw, crap, I've got a half page to fill here. So I got to have these side characters say things. <laughs> that the, and Like I said, with the thing with, you know, Porkins, you'll be avenged or whatever. It's like All these other side guys get their own little dramas that they normally that they don't have in the movie and it's i really i think it's just because roy was like we're a page short we're a page and a half short i'm two pages short all right we got to pad this a little bit here and there uh and yet yet other stuff gets cut you know other scenes got to get trimmed down so it's it's i i mean i'm sure roy has talked about this in interviews and stuff over the years and 
I just don't have it all committed to memory, but yeah. I would love to have seen like what his thinking process was on some of this stuff. Cause there are some scenes in the movie that are very truncated. And then there's others that are given way too, you know, like, you know, like I said, the aforementioned kiss, there's a couple of kisses in the yeah. thing and you're like, well, that's, that's added. That's a weird thing. Okay. All right. Okay. I guess that's what we're doing here. I mean, I guess he's working on this before the movie is coming out. He's got access to the script, but right. Maybe he just didn't know what scenes were going to resonate with the audience. I mean, how could he? Yeah, how could? Yeah, how could? I mean, you know, as, as you well know, the the yeah. word on the street was pretty bad. Yeah. You know that this was not a great movie, and it wasn't. It was really only a couple of people at Twenty Century Fox that that believed in it. So I'm sure that, you know, it was like, okay, let's just get this done. And they had no idea it was going to be that large of it. I mean, I'd heard in some cases it mentioned in that book Marvel: The Untold Story that like Star Wars single handedly like saved Marvel. I think that's probably a little apocryphal, mm-hmm. but that that they were really in the sales doldrum, and then Star Wars just took off like a rocket. Uh, and so that's why, like I said, you get Treasury Editions reprinting it while the damn thing is still going on. Yeah. And, and then a Treasury Edition of the Treasury Editions, <laughs> which which they never did for anybody else. Spider-Man never got that. You know, no, they never did any of that kind of So that shows you how – and then there was an Empire Strikes Back Treasury Edition. So, you know, they they, they didn't do it for, for Jedi, unfortunately, but mm-hmm. – you know, because by then the, the treasuries were out of favor. But, you know, Marvel Marvel knew that, you know, if we slapped Star Wars on a comic cover in pretty much any format, we're, we're going to sell it. Yeah, yeah. As you said, it, it fits perfectly for that format. I mean, Marvel went on to do treasury adaptations of Annie, uh, <laughs> the Smurfs. You know, I mean, stuff that I was like, really? Do you need to do a treasury edition for this? But Star Wars fits perfectly. Star Wars is, is you know, up there with uh, Lawrence of Arabia and a couple others. One of the ultimate 2001, one of the ultimate widescreen movies. And having it at that size is just, to me, it just makes it just a little more special. I think that's a good place to end on. But did you have any final thoughts on the treasuries? Or? Uh, no, no, really. It's just there. You picked them up for a couple of bucks. They are really fun. And I think for any, like, young Star Wars fan, like, I, and I've said this before on a bunch of other shows. I tend to repeat myself. But, like... I don't know why when you go to like a Target, right, or a Walmart and your kid wants to get – well, not your kid, not my kid, but you know what I mean. But like – and you've got your kid and you he wants Star Wars toys. Imagine if Marvel had a treasury edition of Star Wars The Force Awakens or, you know, mm-hmm. sitting next to the toys. You'd sell a million copies. Yeah. You you know, make it – price it at nine ninety five. You'd sell a million copies if you just stocked it right next to the action figures and the lightsabers. I don't know why they don't do that. I, I don't know what the deal is there. But to me, I think a little kid would go nuts to have a giant Star Wars guy. I know I would. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it would be so much fun. So I, I kind of, you know, now that Marvel's doing Treasuries again and they've got the Star Wars license, I, I'm holding out hope that, like, the Spidey Treasury sold really well and maybe they'll think of doing more and maybe they'll do one for Star Wars uh, for whatever i'm i was thinking what the titles are for number eight and i realized we don't know what the i'm breaking news here uh the, yeah whatever the title of, of the eighth one is i hope that they do it because Chef it would Nicholson be great. strikes back exactly all right well i think that would be cool and hopefully you're right hopefully they'll take advantage of that so uh rob thank you very much for being on another episode before you go you do have to answer the Galactic Questionnaire. Now, you've been on the show before, so you've gotten the original questions before, which means you are the first guest on Give Me Those Star Wars to answer Galactic Questionnaire 2.0. Oh, interesting. All right. Kylo Ren's lightsaber or Darth Maul's lightsaber? 
Kylo Ren. I don't like that double-bladed jazz. All right. Question two. X-Wing fighter or TIE fighter? Ooh, tough one. Uh, oh, boy. That's a re- hmm. I think I'm going to go with TIE fighter. I think they seem to, like, go a little faster. All right. Uh, number three. Better sidekick for Lando. Lobot or Nian Num? <laughs> I think... I think Lobot for functionality, just because you can just order around and tell him what to do. Just to, You just program stuff into your Apple Watch, and it just turns Lobot on. I think that's – Nenom is his own person. Okay. All right, question four. You're going away for a while, and you decide to Airbnb your home. <laughs> Who do you rent to, Jar Jar Binks or a family of Jawas? Oh my god, I'd have to... I just... I'd have now, to... Now, before you answer this, keep in mind, one way or another, David Ace Gutierrez will think your answer is racist. <laughs> oh boy. I mean, it's like, on the one hand, if you do it to the Jawas, all my stuff is gone, and, and everything's been stripped. But at the same time, but at the same time, if I run it out to Jar Jar, everything's destroyed because he's tripped over things, and he's, like, covered in tar and feathers... I oh boy, it's that's a really tough one. I think I'm gonna say Jar Jar because he's just one guy. The Jawas, I think they'll just strip mine. They'll they'll pull the <laughs> copper wiring out of the wall. I mean, <laughs> crazy. All right. Question five: Would you rather spend a year working on Uncle Owen's farm or one night dancing for Jabba the Hut? The pay is the same. <laughs> a year. On Uncle Owen, I'm I'm not working for Java because if he I, I I work for someone who has a t- temper and he has not yet thrown me down into a pit into a monster, but I don't think I'm that far away from that. So no, I, I got to go with Uncle Owen. All right, number six, you're piloting a rebel snowspeeder. Which podcaster do you want as your tail gunner? <laughs> uh, do I have to pick just from the Fire Water Network or from anybody. anybody? You can pick. Uh, okay, oh boy. I think I'm going to go with Mike Gillis, reader from The Martians, because I think he'd have a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. And like we could like go back and forth on Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. I think that'd be fun. All right. Finally, number seven. What's the first thing Luke says to Ray after the end of The Force Awakens? <laughs> oh, oh, my God. What kind of... Uh, uh, um, I knew you were coming. All right. Rob, I'm sorry you. that's not funny. No, that's it's not funny or entertaining, but I honestly think like he might say that. Thank you very much for being on Give Me Those Star Wars one more time. It was great to talk to you. Where else can our fans or our listeners hear you on the podcastosphere? Uh, everything on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, which is uh, Fire and Water Podcast, Film and Water Podcast, Pod Dylan, Who's Who, and Power Records. Thank you very much one more time. It was great to talk to you. I love being on the show. I love the show. Thank you, Ryan. Ready? And action! Your heart's beating, and you're actually in this situation. You get something very genuine that you couldn't have planned. You'll actually compose shots that, if we were on a green screen set, you just wouldn't have known were available. Pressure's so high. Like we're making a film that's right touching my favorite movie of all time. But then, if you're too respectful of it, that you didn't do anything new or different, take a risk. Then what are you bringing to the table? All right, we got some great feedback for episode nine. That was the episode guest starring my wife, Angela, 
Everyone who wrote in was complimentary and encouraging of Angie. And here's the thing. I know you think you're being nice, but when you encourage her, she doesn't go away. Hello, Star Wars fans. You really didn't need to do this. The listeners love me. I'm giving them more of what they want. Okay. Like I said, we got some great comments on the Fire and Water website. As always, I'm not going to read every word of every comment. I'm sort of cherry-picking these comments. Why? Uh, mostly for time and expediency. Oh, like your time is so valuable. Do you want me to read the entire comments? Well, these people took the time to listen to the show and write in. I think the least you could do is acknowledge their entire message. Okay. We'll do the whole comment. Our first message comes from Rift, who says, OMG, how come we've never heard from Angela before now? She was totally awesome. Wrong most of the time, but awesome. I think Angela is making comparisons between Force Awakens and the whole of the original trilogy, like you said, Ryan. If you look at A New Hope next to Force Awakens, you have no greater understanding of what the Jedi Order or what the Republic were than you do about the New Republic or Luke's failed attempt at restarting the Jedi Order. Um, no, 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 no. You don't have to know what the Republic is because it's not mentioned in A New Hope, right? Whereas, like, all this stuff, like the First Order and the New Republic, like, it's all brought up in Force Awakens, but that stuff's not introduced in A New Hope. It's introduced later. So, who's wrong? Okay, moving on. (laughs) Rift continues, In A New Hope, Obi-Wan gives his little speech to Luke at his house, and then Tarkin tells us the Republic has been swept away, and that's about it. Actually, he says the Senate, or the last vestiges of the Old Republic, so... Uh, Rift goes on, I really liked Angela's thoughts on Leia's story. I don't agree with Ryan that Leia's story was done at the end of Jedi. The story, the story is totally fixated on Luke's journey of discovering who he is and coming to terms with Vader being his father. <clears throat> there is nothing told from Leia's perspective. The most shocking revelation the movie gives you is that Luke is her brother, and it just leaves it there. Until you get to those novels. And thank you, Angela. I had totally forgotten about the Nogri. You're welcome. This is a brilliant telling of Leia having to come to terms with the fact that Vader was her father as well and that she is a Skywalker. She is able to use the Force as well, something which the cinematic universe has now locked us into this version of Leia where it appears that she has chosen not to try and learn the ways of the Force with no explanation as to why. Which leads us to the main topic of this episode, whether jumping so far forward in time was the right move. Before listening to this episode, I hadn't really considered it, but after listening to Angela, I'm on her side. There is so much that's happened between Jedi and The Force Awakens, and we won't see any of it, unless, like Ryan said, we get episodes 6.1, 6.2, and 6.3. I think this was done so we could have characters like Rey not knowing who she is or where she fits in. But it leaves the same size holes that A New Hope did in where did these characters come from and how did they get there. Another reason why so many people were annoyed and claiming The Force Awakens was A New Hope 2.0. I want to see Luke trying to restart the Order. I want to see why Leia decided not to train to be a Jedi, probably to remain more in the political role considering the power vacuum left by the Empire, but that still could have been her dark side struggle. Gah, lost opportunities. But all in all, I guess these points could be covered in Episodes 8 and 9. A truly great episode, Ryan, and Angela can't come back soon enough. See, she can't. See, told ya. (laughs) But is it a conceit that the first female guest is also the first guest to go outside of the bounds of the questionnaire? No, Angela, you can't have the Endor speeder bikes because they were not an option. There, I said it. Let's slip the dogs of war. And you get points for the Julius Caesar illusion. 
Was Julius Caesar? I thought it was like Henry V. No, it's Julius Caesar. Mark Antony says it after, like, right before his funeral um, speech. The cry havoc, let's slip the dogs of war? Yeah. I always thought that was a Henry V. No, Mar- Marlon Brando. Okay, let's okay. slip the dogs. Oh, jeez. All right, all right, all right. Why do you... <sighs> so, anyway, definitely Rift seems to be taking your side a lot. And he's a cop from Australia, so you basically won the vote of nice. Mad Max. <laughs> Thanks, right. Rift. The next comment came from Chris Franklin, host of the Supermates podcast right here on the Fire and Water Network. Chris said, finally, another Fire and Water host gets his opinions busted on air by his significant other. I no longer feel alone. <laughs> Seriously, I smell a super <laughs> I smell a Supermates give me those Star Wars couples night episode on the horizon. We'll bring the dip. You guys bring the chips. <laughs> Actually, Angela will probably make naan and hummus. Yeah, naan and hummus. Uh, Angela was a real hoot, Chris says, and despite my disagreeing with much of what she said, I can de- uh, what yeah, he said, I can definitely see where she is coming from. Put me in the camp that thinks the original film didn't give us any more backstory or character depth than The Force Awakens. I think the sequels, and especially the years of other media, comics, novels, etc., have had a cumulative effect on the original film, and makes us often think that there is more on the screen than there really is. I wouldn't mind seeing some flashbacks to the time between Jedi and The Force Awakens, but with Disney's patented de-aging abilities seen in Ant-Man and Captain America Civil War, there's really no need to recast. Despite the eerie, oh, creepy. Despite the eerie resemblance between Mark Hamill and Sebastian Stan, the thing is, like, the body types for some of these actors have changed a lot. <laughs> uh, Chris goes on, although I could go for a Luke movie with Sebastian Stan for sure. I'd rather see that than the Han Solo flick. And that's because I do agree with Angela on Luke. He's my favorite character, too. See, you're not alone. Yay! I mean, I grew. I was, I was a Luke guy by default, just because my older brother picked Han. Uh, Rob Kelly, who you just heard earlier on this episode, folks, said, Yeah, we definitely need to hear more of Angela on Give Me Those Star Wars, if not the whole network. Yeah. You can do the Film and Water podcast episode on the five-hour Kenneth Branagh Hamlet. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast said, So that's how you get to be on the show. Well, there's a lot of other stuff I have to put up with, too, so don't think that I'm just, like, you know, doing this pain-free. <laughs> we got two comments very similar. Uh, first, Lucien Dessar with diamonds. Sorry, I keep wanting to make that joke. <laughs> Lucien Dessar said, Great and entertaining podcast. Best line, I'll cut off your arms with a lightsaber. <laughs> and Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks podcast echoed that saying, I believe her when she says she'll hack off all of your limbs. Mm, he should. <laughs> Our final comment came from Jeff Nettleton. I hate to tell you, but I'm pretty much with Angela on Force Awakens. Leaving aside the complete rehash of the plot of Star Wars, I didn't really feel like I got to know the new characters. Also, I would have liked to have seen something like the Thrawn trilogy. I've always argued that destroying the second Death Star wouldn't bring an end to the Empire. Sure, the Emperor is gone, and a significant portion of the Imperial fleet... However, there is no way the number of ships we saw was everything. You couldn't control the galaxy with a fleet that small. There had to be other forces. We saw in Tarkin that the regional governors had tremendous power. We'd see battles between them for control of the Empire. We'd see the rebels push their advantage. That was at the heart of the Thrawn stories. The rebels took Coruscant and controlled the center, but Thrawn controlled a significant portion of territory and was making life hell for the New Republic. 
Jeff continues, I do want new characters, but I also want to see the originals finish their personal stories. That's what got me to pick up Zahn's book when I first saw Heir to the Empire in a bookstore. Apart from Splinter of the Mind's Eye and the last of the Han Solo books, I hadn't picked up the previous Star Wars novels. I stopped reading the Marvel comic after issue 50. It was spinning its wheels until Jedi. Then it had nowhere to go. Zahn gave me the feeling that I had been missing since Archie Goodwin gave up writing the Star Wars comics. It had the characters, it had new threats, it had great military battles... Subsequent books didn't, so I stopped reading the new novels. Zahn was the only author I felt understood what made the films great, while adding something new. I was curious about the Mike Stackpole Rogue Squadron books, as I knew his writing from military reference books. I ought to pick some of those up. And yeah, I think Jeff has a uh, military background. He was a naval officer. I definitely think he would like the Rogue Squadron books. I barely remember them, but I remember really liking them. Jeff continues, I hope the reshoots on Rogue One are in service to making the best film. I like the idea of this far more than the J.J. Abrams retreading of Star Wars. I wanted to see the rebel military forces in action without Luke. These guys had victories or else Vader wouldn't have been chasing after them. That's what I want to see. My hope is that they took cues from the great commando films of the 60s, like The Guns of Navarone and Where Eagles Dare. Star Wars did, and it helps keep the tension up. Allows for action, but also some good drama. Nobody makes military films like that anymore, so sci-fi is one of the few genres that can depict that mix of drama and action with that heroic feel. Unless Marvel wises up and does Sergeant Fury and his howling commandos, though I doubt you can make it work after Captain America the First Avenger made so many changes to the howlers, or Warner Brothers decides to do a Losers movie based on the original comic, not the later thing. Meanwhile, to pull cranky old man on this, you guys had it so lucky to be able to see the Star Wars trilogy in one go or whenever you wanted on VHS and DVD. It was a long wait for Empire, with only Marvel and Alan Dean Foster to feed the hunger. We don't speak of the holiday special. Then it was an even longer time to find out what happens to Han, which pretty much killed the comics' momentum. Why do you think we went to the theater so much to see them? I wasn't as lucky as my cousin, who had the video disc player, this was before even Laserdisc, and could watch Star Wars over and over again, though you had to flip the disc over halfway through the movie. When I was in college, they would have marathon showings of all three films, and Jedi was only a couple of years old, on the campus film circuit. Those were big events. Anyway, enjoyed the episode and loved hearing Angela. Jeff's an awesome guy. He is. He's very good. <laughs> he was my guest on a few episodes of the Secret Origins podcast. Nice. Uh, any final thoughts, Angie, before we leave? Um, it was really cool to hear feedback back. I, I, I definitely, I just want to reiterate that I did not hate Force Weekends, and I hope I didn't come off as if I did. But I'm, like, really geeky about this property, so, you know, I'm really critical of it. And, and I guess I constantly look for opportunity for there to be more, and I think skipping... 30 years or whatever, you know, skips a major opportunity for more. Um, and I don't understand why you would do that when you have kind of limited time, right? Like these stories will, these stories will hit walls. So why not fill out t- that rich material? So, yeah. yeah. And thanks for uh, letting Ryan know that, you know, I was an okay guest because he wasn't letting me be on his show. And it was just oh my gosh. sad for me. I said you could be on the show whenever you wanted. Oh, now I'm going to be on the hook to have you on more often. So. <laughs> Poor you. Yeah. All right, folks, that is all for this episode of Give Me Those Star Wars. Once again, I want to thank Rob Kelly for being my guest and Angela Drew for 
I guess you'd call it assisting me with the listener feedback. Thanks to everyone who posted a comment on the website or promoted the show on social media like Facebook and Twitter. Give Me Those Star Wars is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Give Me Those Star Wars. You can also find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Part of the theme music for this podcast is performed by the Evil Genius Orchestra from their album Star Wars Cocktails in the Cantina, available for purchase on iTunes and at Amazon Music. That and all other music, audio clips, or quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. Give Me Those Star Wars is not affiliated with Lucasfilm or Disney, and I make no money from this podcast, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and And may may the the Force be with you. you.